The best and most important decision that a CISO or any cybersecurity professional makes is how to allocate scarce resource to the highest risk because there's not enough capacity and resource to do everything. So if you have unlimited budgets, unlimited time, and you try to do everything, that's not real world. It's not the way business enterprises operate. Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategists, I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So Stan, who do we have joining us on this episode? Well, Rob, I'm really excited to say that we have Jim Routh, Head of Enterprise Cybersecurity at MassMutual with us today. Jim, thank you for joining us. Stan, my pleasure. Now, now, Jim, you've been on the cutting edge for our cybersecurity leadership for at least two decades, and both in the financial as well as the healthcare sector. Uh, can you provide a brief overview of, of your background uh, for our audience? Sure. This is the sixth uh, CISO role that I've had. Uh, most of them uh, have been in financial services, but I spent about uh, seven years in healthcare, uh, both uh, as a CISO for uh, Aetna and uh, CVS. Uh, had uh, responsible for physical security as well, uh, and then uh, also ran uh, the Health ISAC or Information Sharing Analysis Center. Uh, so, um, so both financial services and healthcare, uh, kind of uh, uh, overall. But uh, I tell you, Stan, one of the things I've learned is that you can take the same type of company in the same ind industry in the same relative size with the same or similar technology architecture, and it turns out that they could have a very different risk profile. Uh, so there isn't a one-size-fits-all model for cybersecurity. There never was. There are certainly industry standards uh, that are important and essential, uh, and there's risk frameworks that are essential. Uh, but the actual risk profile for an enterprise uh, has a lot uh, that uh, changes the attack surface uh, from one enterprise to the other. Uh, and how an enterprise makes decisions uh, actually impacts their cyber resilience. Uh, so risk profiles could vary even in the same industry uh, for the same types of companies. Is, is that to some degree based on the level of maturity of where they are um, as far as how exposed they are in the different areas because they haven't necessarily put in the controls they need? That's part of it. Uh, another part of it is um, the actual attack surface can be exponentially greater based on the data protection uh, and data classification model that's used. I'll give you an example. Um, if an enterprise deals with customer information and that customer information is replicated, let's say 10 times uh, once it's collected uh, through an enterprise, uh, and these are through multiple business processes, multiple technologies. Um, that would indicate one, um, one aspect of, uh, of the risk profile. Uh, 
if you take the exact same scenario, but multiply uh, the 10 times of replicating that data to 200 times, that enterprise dealing with, again, the same information, but uh, uh, promulgated throughout hundreds of business processes used by thousands of employees that have access to it across multiple systems and databases, the attack surface is fundamentally exponentially greater uh, than the previous enterprise. And so how the data is used in the enterprise is a key correlation to the actual size and breadth of the attack surface, giving the threat actor more opportunity to access that information versus uh, smaller, more contained and more well-protected source of data. So Jim, I think um, you you kind of alluding to one of the areas I wanna go into, but I wanna pull it back a little bit and that's about risk. But um, when, when you, have gone through your different roles, right? Different organizations as you're talking about. Let's talk about the most recent one, right? Coming from Aetna slash CVS over to Mass Mutual. And if you don't mind kind of just sharing, what, what is it that you typically are doing in kind of the first you know, phase of you getting into the environment, assessing what's going on, the program that's currently in place that you're kind of inheriting, if you will, but also building that business relationship with the key executives and ensuring that you've gotten the buy-in, which I, I think you know probably a a point within your interview due diligence, you're probably having some of those conversations to ensure that you're getting to something that's truly going to get the level of investment that you desire, but share kind of what that kind of, you know, period of time of going through and getting started is all about those relationships you kind of build, connect and understand, you know, what the appetite for risk is within that organization. Well, Rob, it actually goes back to uh, something I learned very early in my career. Uh, and I'll give you a little bit of context. Um, what my first role in cybersecurity uh, 20 years ago was actually as a CISO for American Express. And the reality is I didn't have any idea what I was doing. Uh, I was well in over my head. And um, the f- second day on the job, I had this meeting with the OCC scheduled. And the title of the meeting was Delivery of the Information Security uh, Strategy for American Express. <laughs> On day two? (laughs) On day two. And so on day one, I pretty much recognized that I was in deep trouble, like well over my head. And I made a phone call to somebody that uh, was uh, recommended to me, uh, a guy named Steve Katz, who turns out he was the first CISO ever. And I said, Steve, I got this meeting with the OCC tomorrow. I'm new to cybersecurity and I'm clueless and I need help. And he said, oh, well, congratulations. And he said, look, I'll be right over. Literally, he hung up the phone. For 45 minutes later, he came over to my office, brought two other people with him. There were two other CISOs for other financial service firms that dropped everything they had to do that day to help me prepare for the OCC presentation. And the three of them put the entire presentation together for me, had me rehearse it. They, they basically role-played the OCC. Uh, and then they, you know, four hours later, they said, you're ready. And I was like, I don't feel ready. They said, look, just te- do exactly what we told you to do. And I did. I followed their instructions completely uh, the next day. And uh, turns out that the OCC said, yeah, I think that's a pretty good strategy. We'll see you in a year, which is about as good as it gets. What it taught me at that point in time is that there was a formula. And the formula was basically pick an industry standard, align your cybersecurity control procedures with the control objectives in the risk framework, 
and then get a third party to attest to that on a regular basis on the efficacy of your controls and fix all of the gaps that you find on an ongoing basis. And that was the model that I thought, again, 20 years ago, was the one size fits all model that works for every single enterprise. And so I took that model with me in my second uh, CISO role, but um, largely because I was a bit naive and early in my career in security, I studied the threat actors and what they did because I wanted to learn more about cybersecurity. And it turns out that of all the stakeholders in an enterprise um, that, that bought into this um, use of industry standard risk frameworks. Um, the board bought into it, the audit committee bought into it, auditors, regulators, uh, CIOs, uh, CTOs, like everyone in the enterprise bought into this notion of applying an industry standard risk framework and aligning your controls to that. And that's as good as it gets. That's best in class cybersecurity. The only stakeholder that didn't buy into that were the threat actors. And the threat actors recognized that if it's a vanilla environment with the same controls with a follow the herd mentality across the enterprise, all they had to do is deviate their tactics, bypass controls, and then they're going to be successful at every single enterprise that they apply that with assuming enterprises follow an industry standard model. And at the time, that was what everybody did. They followed and the so blueprint, I started, right? Say it again. They followed their blueprint. They followed the blueprint. And um, so I recognized, uh, because I really wanted to keep my job, uh, I noticed that uh, if I get fired for a major cybersecurity breach, my wife is very unhappy. And that's a problem. That creates a problem at home. This is something you want to avoid at all costs. Uh, and so I recognized that in order to avoid that kind of situation at home, uh, what I needed to do was to recognize that risk is different from industry standard risk frameworks, and that risk is different across different enterprises based on the risk profile of that enterprise. And so um, it started uh, probably the realization uh, started to hit me when I looked at software security. So um, it turns out with software security, and, and again, this is back in the day, this is a while back, uh, but um, at the time there were probably 80% of all of the commonly used consumer digital web applications um, had high risk vulnerabilities in the code that was driving those applications. Uh, and the reason for that is because nobody was spending any time thinking about how to remove those defects from the development process um, because they were, you know, focused on getting functionality in the marketplace as quickly as possible, right? I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Adobe. I mean, exactly. I mean, Adobe Flash yeah. is an example. Yeah, it's a great example. And um, it's not that they didn't have good engineers. Uh, it just turns out that, it, you know, I could be a a world-class writer, which I'm not, but if, but if I were a world-class writer, I'd be crazy not to use the spell check and grammar check in Microsoft Word when I produce any content. Well, it turns out that maybe we had world-class developers, but they weren't using the tools available to them to identify defects in the development process and remove those defects. 
So that was one fundamental problem. The other fundamental problem is that even with all of the defects that are readily visible and available across websites, there was no attribution. So when a consumer had their uh, data compromised, they weren't making the correlation that that was because a website was poorly developed and designed. It, it, you know, they weren't attributing it back to the website. And so there was no incentive for enterprises to in, uh, invest in better cybersecurity controls for software or software security. Uh, and so what I did is I, I recognized that to make it compelling for an organization to adopt the right practices for software security, it had to be economically viable. It had to be, uh, there had to be some economic benefit because economic benefit is something that every uh, CFO, CEO, CIO, C-suite executive understands. Uh, and, and you don't have to get into the arcane nature of the difficulty of attribution of software. You can just say, look, since we build software, let's build it with quality the first time because it costs less than building it without quality and then going back and trying to fix the defects. It's kind of like a manufacturing a car that has dents in the driver's side door uh, coming off the assembly line. And then- Well, can... and, and, and many organizations already have quality built into MVOs for their development leads. Um, and so if you can piggyback on that, right? Exactly right, Stan, yeah. And so, you know, it, the gap between industry standard risk frameworks and the actual risk profile of the enterprise was getting larger because threat actors were deviating in their tactics. And that's when I realized the difference between compliance-based security and risk-driven security. And risk-driven security is where you study threat actor tactics and you change your controls when the tactics change and evolve. I think you call it, Jim, uh, non-conventional security controls? Non-conventional controls. So right. conventional security controls are well-established in risk frameworks. And they represent an excellent place to start. And, and they're absolutely essential for an enterprise. But they're insufficient. They're not enough to protect your spouse from the vagaries of getting fired for major security breach. You have to recognize that risk is different than compliance. And changing controls based on changes in the evolution of threat actor tactics is fundamentally required for cyber resilience uh, today. Whereas compliance to industry standard frameworks was sufficient yesterday. And I'm talking, you know, decades ago. So uh, to, that's the fundamental difference. And most enterprises I went, I've been to in uh, my current experience here is, uh, at Mass Mutual, I, I had to change the mindset from a compliance-oriented view of cybersecurity to a risk-driven view of cybersecurity. And today, um, the enterprise from the CEO all the way down to every single employee and contractor that's working in the environment um, demonstrates cyber resilience in proactive behaviors to design and implement controls as threat actors evolve their tactics. Now, now Jim, a question for you, I guess a statement first and then a question. What you were talking about as it relates to that, that kind of compliance um, approach 
and then pivot to really being risk oriented. I completely agree with that. And I've always discussed, and I want your opinion on this. I've always discussed it from the perspective of whatever I need to do from a compliance perspective to get the check to get by, I'm going to obviously accomplish that for our business, but I'm going to take the investment or the funding that I will be given to enable me to accomplish that and really apply it to my overarching security program and what I'm trying to deliver going forward while still getting me the check boxes on the compliance. So is that kind of a principle that you've also seen or even leveraged within some of the different organizations you've been a part of? The answer, Rob, yes, is um, that is largely what, uh, what we do. We think about compliance as the minimum standard that's required. Right. Um, and we are not at all satisfied with that bar. I consider it to be a relatively low bar. In many enterprises, that is the bar. <laughs> but in my view, that's, that's a low bar. The higher bar is to be able to determine what the highest risks are to the enterprise, and then to recognize that every enterprise has scarce assets, resources, and capabilities to deploy against the risks. And so the best and most important decision that a CISO or any cybersecurity professional makes is how to allocate scarce resource to the highest risk, because there's not enough capacity and resource to do everything. And even if, so if you have unlimited budgets, unlimited time, and you try to do everything, that's not real world. It's not the way business enterprises operate. So what we have to do is recognize that we have scarcity in the resources that we allocate. So the decisions that we make in that allocation become much more important. And we have to apply the best and the most resource to the highest risk, recognizing that the number 15 risk on the list is probably going to be resource starved in terms of the projects and programs supporting the risk management processes. However, the top 10 cyber risks and the corresponding projects, programs, and remediation work, that will be the highest priority and that will get the most resources. And therefore, it'll move the needle, so to speak, in terms of managing risk for the enterprise more effectively uh, because it's the right way to allocate resource from a priority standpoint. So Jim, you have to have a pretty good understanding of your critical business processes yes, and the assets that support them, yes. right? I, I imagine each organization you've come into, they've perhaps had a different level of maturity of that understanding. Do you typically own that function as well? I do. So okay. uh, typically what I'll do is, and, and uh, this is the fortunate part of being old, Stan, like you and me, uh, is that um, I've the experience, you know, in enterprises uh, for close to 40 years, you know, 38 years probably uh, working in different enterprises. And I've worked in, you know, largely because I can't keep a job for very long. I've worked in lots of different uh, organizations. And um, so I have a pretty good um, feel for understanding the complexity of business processes, specifically legacy business processes, what the implications are from a data perspective, uh, and how to assess risks uh, across different business processes and, uh, and technologies. And I use that, I leverage that, that to me, that's a, an asset and a strength that I use to prioritize. And that's, this is 
more than anything else, this is a fundamental role of prioritizing their resource allocation for the enterprise. Uh, and that can't be done alone. In other words, I can't do that alone. I have to uh, convince uh, the executive um, you know, level of in the company uh, what the priorities are. I have to convince the middle management layer within the company of what the priorities are. I have to convince the rank and file uh, and everyone else in the company of what the priorities are. And I have to uh, drive towards consensus on the priorities. And I say consensus because it's not the cybersecurity team saying, these are the top risks, therefore these are their top priorities. It's the enterprise that's making decisions on allocation of resource for the top priorities. So the enterprise has to buy in and have consensus on what the risks are. And so um, I populate the top risks and make that transparent across the enterprise. It's not, it's not a secret. It's, it's not, you know, don't tell anybody, but these are the top. No, it's, it's fully exposed to everyone understands what the top risks are and how we allocate scarce resources to manage those top risks. And that's transparent. Um, and that is what gives us a foundation for cyber resilience in the enterprise today, because the decisions that are made from a business perspective, just uh, like any other decisions in the enterprise, impact our cyber resilience. And so those decisions have to be uh, in the right context, just like all the technology decisions. It's not just about the, uh, the technology. And to get true enterprise cyber resilience, um, senior leaders have to have knowledge of risks and ways of managing that risk um, versus uh, accepting the risk. I'm not a big fan of risk acceptance. I know it's an industry standard. I don't follow it. Um, and the reason I don't follow it is, in my experience, when a risk gets accepted, it gets put carefully under the carpet or the rug. It <laughs> is so true. About. I, I, I experienced the same thing. It is so right? true. Everyone does, right? And, and it's like two, three years after that decision to stick it under the rug, you know, someone else says, no, we don't have to do that. It's like an exemption. It's like, no, what, you know, and the reality is the risk profile of the enterprise changes and the risk uh, posture changes and the threats change. And so deciding that we're not going to apply a control to a particular risk at a particular point in time, but recognizing that we're going to revisit that within a you know six month time frame as an example. It's not a pass for all time. We are not letting you off the hook completely <laughs> for all exemption. time. That's exactly right. right. It's right. A, it's it's basically saying we're managing that risk. Here's how we're managing it. And in six months' time, there could be a different technology capability available to the enterprise that makes managing that risk far easier to implement than six months previously. So things change. And from my standpoint, managing risk is what we do as cybersecurity professionals, not, right. not getting the business to accept the risk and saying, hey, they accepted it. It's not my job, right? Very That's true. Not cyber resilience in my mind. Now, Jim, Speaking of cyber resilience, which you've kind of um, threaded into the conversation, you know, that's definitely one of the things that we've seen in a lot of different conversations we've, we've had in, in, in past episodes is, is the whole theme, I guess, I guess, kind of elevation of cyber resilience. 
what I'm getting at is I'd love to know what are you seeing working within the business and their understanding and translation of what it means to be resilient. So there's that enterprise resilience kind of aspect that's always been around, right? How do we ensure that our business operations for whatever line of business we're in continues to move forward, right? Generates the revenue, right? It's, it's what we're in business to do. Now there's the cyber lens on it. So what have you seen as far as that kind of uh, focus, adoption, and the culture, right? Around, hey, we, we need to pay attention to resiliency from a cyber lens, if you will. So Rob, I think that's a, a great question. And to answer that question, I'm gonna give you an example, a specific example that can do a far better job of, of uh, telling a story with, uh, uh, with the answer than, uh, than what I could uh, come up with. So the head of enterprise risk for the company uh, suggested a tabletop exercise for the executive leadership team. That's the uh, senior executives that would be the CEO and the CEO's direct reports. Uh, and I said, hey, that's a brilliant idea. Exercising our ability to respond to scenarios is part of uh, cyber resilience and certainly will promote that across the enterprise. So absolutely. So we decided to use, uh, we had seen some trends of changes in threat actor tactics related to ransomware. So instead of just using phishing to uh, 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 or, or to share malware uh, once somebody clicks on a link, uh, which is kind of traditional conventional uh, ransomware uh, deployment, we're seeing ransomware as a service. So there's two ways that it's morphed. And this started maybe you know six, eight months ago, we started to see it across the industry where uh, a, a sophisticated threat actor would use uh, way RDP usually exploiting some vulnerabilities, get into an environment, escalate privilege, move laterally, uh, and use some sophisticated tools to dump credentials, get privileged uh, access, uh, and then exfiltrate data, uh, and then alert the enterprise that the data was exfiltrated and demand a ransom payment uh, for and then threaten you know, to expose that data if they don't uh, release it. Uh, so that was one variant. The other variant was basically using denial of service attacks uh, as a precursor to a ransomware uh, request, a ransom request. Uh, and again, using different technology and, and both cases, pretty sophisticated use of technology capability uh, to uh, uh, you know, basically extort a uh, ransom payment. Um, now that was um, fueled by the insurance industry, specifically offering cybersecurity insurance and paying for ransoms, okay? And so this is something that's becoming much more uh, frequent uh, and an episode for enterprises uh, because of that kind of cycle. And so uh, we decided to do a, uh, tabletop using this scenario, attacking one of our uh, advisor, uh, basically our, uh, our third-party advisors uh, that, uh, that distribute uh, our products. Uh, and it turns out we went through it and we came up with 28 lessons learned that were all you know, really significant. Uh, and two of which, uh, the first one was um, that making a decision to separate the advisor from the network was paramount and needed to be done at the SOC level, 
with no senior you know, leadership deciding that because of this time, because most of the damage is done in the first few minutes of a, of a you know, ransomware attack. So that was one critical decision. The second was to put all of the resources of the enterprise behind the recovery efforts for the agency. Uh, so those two decisions, again, came out of the lessons learned from this exercise. And it was like eight weeks later, we had the exact scenario occur, exact scenario. And not only were we well prepared for that, we were able to disrupt the threat actor so that the amount of data that they exfiltrated was insignificant. It was old data and it and was very small scale. And because we disrupted them, they didn't even get a ransom request out in time before we had identified it and addressed it. Now, had we not done the tabletop, I don't think we would have been as responsive to disrupt what the threat actor, in this case, a sophisticated threat actor, what they were attempting to do. And so in my mind, that's the best example of cyber resilience across the enterprise. It started really from a business perspective, worked its way through the entire technology infrastructure. And in this case, through the distribution channel for the enterprise and ended up with not only an opportunity to respond and recover very quickly with minimal business impact, uh, in real time, but then apply the lessons learned in the real incident to adjustments and changes going forward. Again, promoting this notion of cyber resilience across the enterprise. So um, that's, you know, that's an actual event. And uh, that's probably the best way I can describe cyber resilience. It's a great way of describing it and a great analogy because you just talked about, right, the preparation and the investment, right, that the, the executive committee had in, in realizing that this is important. And then the realization Right of it taking place and how you were able to withstand and then adjust going forward. So I think that's a, that's an absolutely great example. And I think those tabletop exercises, you're, you're building that muscle memory in the organization, right? I mean, so that when you do have those incidents, they understand who they need to talk to and they can actually respond effectively. Great that you actually picked the scenario that then six weeks, eight weeks later actually occurred. That, that's, that's fantastic. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Very insightful conversation. And I really appreciate your, your time. It's my pleasure, Stan. Thank you. Thank Rob. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe.